Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. I am your host, Matt Freeman, and oh, oh, I just dropped my nano knife through the floor of my hotel room. And as always, I'm joined by my flesh duplicate that I have shaped into Scott Daly. Matt, what color was the cake on my 23rd birthday? You're five days old. Oh, oh God. Do, do I even like cake? No. <sighs> oh, God. Well, anyway, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are covering the first half of the penultimate arc of worm, arc 29, Venom. This is chapters... One through chapters five. And Matt, um, we're, we're back, we're back in the thick of it. We had our kind of, our lull of a chapter, I get, or arc, I guess you could call it, with what 28 was, and now we're back, back into the end of the world once again. Yeah, yeah. Last, last arc was our breather, and now we have returned to the, the violence and bloodshed and, and horror that is, that is what we're used to <laughs> in this story. Yeah. Some, some of that, bl- uh, violence, bloodshed, and horror, um, uh, thrown at our characters and some of it uh, created created by our characters yeah, yeah yeah it's uh and some interesting symmetries there certainly yeah um and it's uh, you know whenever we have to split these things up it's always hard to talk about the arc as a whole because we haven't seen everything yet so i've only seen half of this part of the story um but i like i like where it's heading and i'm very much looking forward to, to getting into the weeds yeah me too um, all right. First, uh, some announcements. I guess the fan art contest, uh, th- this quarterly fan art contest, has wrapped up as of uh, last week. Um, what What are we? Where are we with that, Scott? Yeah. If you are listening to this right now, uh, the poll for our patrons to vote on the winner of that contest should, in theory, be open. So um, you should have gotten an email from Patreon. If not, just go to Patreon.com/slash/DailyPlanetFilms. If you are a patron and you can vote on which of the uh, which of the artworks you think is the best and then we will crown a winner based off of your vote. We got uh, uh more entries than we did last time, which is exciting and they're they're very good. I'm very excited about them. Um and I'm excited to to keep this this thing going too because as we move into ward there's much less fan art um mm-hmm. that that exists so far. So um it's going to be it's going to be interesting going forward, but uh, once again always like floored by some of the ideas you guys came up with it's very great yeah i'm looking forward to seeing all those yeah all right so regarding comments questions corrections from last week uh there was there was one comment i i liked a lot uh it was highlighting the the dramatic irony of the fact that idolin was basically killed by the knowledge that he apparently is responsible for the inbringers in some way but it seemed like they're going to actually be an asset for the good guys so uh, I think that's that's really um, that's really interesting device. Yeah, yeah, especially like um, th- there was the whole thing that like part of Collagen's plan was to create capes that had the power of Idolin that had his equal level of power, and little did they know that his power allowed him to create <laughs> things that uh, that were uh, either equal or, or more powerful than him um, that right. are going to actually be used in this thing. So, uh, unbeknownst to them, their their plan was semi-successful i guess yeah yeah that's really cool i like that a lot yeah yeah it fits into the whole kind of like consequences of action thing and how you can't 
you can't really ever see the consequences of the things you do and the decisions you make fully. There's always unintended things uh, for good or ill that happen with every right. choice you make. And it makes Eidolon's death even more tragic in this particular way. Yeah. 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 Rest in peace, right. Eidolon. Yeah. Did you have any other comments you wanted to talk about? No, there was um there there was a really great comment about Lisa, and I'm blanking on who said it now. Um, but just uh it was Kajito, that that's who it was, yeah. Um just talking about uh how Lisa's their favorite character and um how kind of um Lisa's like whole thing has always been she'd be willing to do anything for her friends including like ruthlessly kill or take out anyone that wasn't her 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 group around her and how significant this this growth that we saw last last arc in her ability to say no these people um these people that that are here i i actually want to save them i care for them and uh that's really exciting yeah yeah that's awesome yeah she basically said i i kind of feel the way that I, that I felt about Taylor, uh, about everyone now. And yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and I think I forgot to say the first comment about Eidolon was from Miroid. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. always, always great comments everywhere. Um, on YouTube, uh, emails we get and, and, and Reddit, always, always some great comments. We don't have time to go through them all, unfortunately, but keep them up guys. It's yeah. great to participate and then see the conversations that you guys start from these episodes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into the arc. We open up 29.1 with Tattletail waking up from her from her siesta, having been sung to all night by the Seamurg. Taylor is already awake, having not slept at all. Yeah, um, an alternate one-line description of Worm could just be a teenage superhero refuses to get sufficient sleep ever, and a disaster ensues. Yeah, that is a recurring motif. It really is. She, making never, terrible decisions. she never has enough sleep ever. Yeah. Yeah, the whole uh, the whole kid in the arc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Lisa seems to think that the lullaby was not for her. Yeah, because it was for her test tube Embringer baby. Mm. This is my speculation. Uh, I still, I'm pretty convinced, Matt. I've convinced okay. myself, just like I convinced myself about Brian, which might have been um, me letting my personal feelings get in the <laughs> way of logic. But you know what? I'm sticking with it. Yeah. Uh. So. I, I pulled this quote out. Um, it didn't serve to keep secrets right now. It would be disastrous in the worst case scenario. And Tattletail was the best person to go to when I needed answers. She apologized. So t- Taylor's telling Taylor, uh, Taylor's telling Tattletail that she thinks that the Seamurg telepathically in some sense apologized to her. And I think I've mentioned this probably too many times now, but God, I love Taylor's mentality of let me address and quickly resolve this thing that's on my mind instead of letting it fester for several books worth of text. Uh, it, Cause like I know I mentioned it a few times, but it's not, it's not trivial. It's not a trivial thing. So many stories, so many popular well-loved stories even are virtually ruined or at least undermined because they rely on, on the fake sort of tension that's caused by characters not communicating when they have no in-story reason not to communicate. Like it's, it's a very, very, cheap false hollow kind of dramatic irony when the characters are just not talking to each other and it's frustrating and i really appreciate that taylor does not do that yeah no i i completely agree i love this too um i just actually watched the new pixar film last week which uh, pixar's coco which is a wonderful film that i i quite enjoy and would thoroughly recommend to everyone but i could not help but feel that um, every bit of conflict and tension in that movie 
was just the result of people not speaking to each other. Um, just like you could, you could have resolved this conflict if you just had a five minute conversation that explained who you were and where you came from and all these things. And, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty, pretty lazy way to manufacture conflict. And, and Worm largely stays away from ever doing that. And in fact, not only is, is it so much better from a narrative perspective to avoid conflict like that, but, but Wild Bill actually builds that trait into a character trait for Taylor. Like not only does he avoid doing this cheap and easy conflict production, but he makes Taylor's one of her central traits, a frustration at the idea that people never communicate and never talk to each other and never are honest with the, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And I think, I think that's great. Yeah. That's one of her, you know, if you were to list her core character traits, I think that would be one at the very top is is her her thing for communication so yeah this is, mm-hmm. this is one of the myriad ways in which this story scratches the itch that's created by uh, other stories not doing it right yeah absolutely so anyway lisa doesn't make much of the i'm sorry from the seamurg and and doubts certainly that the seamurg is sorry yeah um in my head this was always a, a callback to Dinah's note, like the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, she's referencing, she's throwing an allusion back to one of Dinah's notes to her. But it, it seems that Taylor doesn't realize that in the moment. And I uh, I wonder if that'll that'll pay off at some point in the future. And by wonder, I mean, I, I think it definitely will. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, that, that, that's interesting. I, I thought it was I thought it was so clear that it was a, that it was a callback to Dinah's note that I was confused that Taylor didn't get it. But um yeah. Anyway. Yeah so, yeah. so Taylor finds herself wondering if Clockblocker would be coping better than than she is um, if he wasn't dead. Uh, so she's thinking about how at least she's been bracing herself for this outcome all along, having taken Dinah's prophecy to heart, whereas somebody with Clockblocker's mentality might be might be crushed by what's happened. Yeah. So, Matt. <laughs> One of the things she says in this moment is that Clockblocker would have handled this stuff better than she did, possibly, because he was so optimistic. Clockblocker was an optimist. The last time we saw Clockblocker, would you describe him as optimistic? That wouldn't have been my go-to. No. Let's just take a trip down worm memory lane here. In Arc 26, we have Clockblocker saying... There's no damn point to it, but sometimes I look at the idiots, the selfish assholes, and the maniacs that fill this world and think that's all we deserve. Man, that's 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 optimistic right there. Yeah, yeah, but you know, maybe that was just a one-off. Yeah, yeah. Wait, no, I'm seeing. Hold on, I'm just getting something. It's coming back. Uh, Arc 19. No, Clockblocker cut me off. We lost. Not this fight. Maybe we can still win it. Won't deny it's possible with Scion maybe showing up. But the big picture, there's no coming back from this. Man, that dude, dude is so so optimistic. Um, the the thing that's funny about this is I think I think I I, I really just like went through some of the past arcs to to find out where this idea that Clockblocker is optimistic came from, and I found it. It's in arc twenty six, right around that first quote that we read. Um, and and she she asks him. She says, um, "The side of the world thing. That way you talk about the future, life beyond the supposed apocalypse event. Can you do that because you're optimistic, or because you don't think it'll happen?" And his answer is not, it's because I'm optimistic. His answer is, I don't have another choice. I, I can't stay sane if I don't do it. That's, that's not optimism. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's coping. That's dealing with stuff 
but I think it's very interesting that she she sees him as this optimistic character and then says, would he be dealing with this better because he's optimistic, where it, it feels like a misread of, of who Clockblocker was. I mean, maybe at one point in his career, he was an optimist, but I think we saw that kind of get slowly beaten out of him. Yeah, um, I think exactly like you said, it, it's it's a coping mechanism. And the way Taylor deals with it is her own form of coping me- mechanism where she she devotes herself utterly to this mission because um, it, it's the, it's the thing that allows her to kind of get through her day is this idea that like, well, at least I'm doing everything I can. And what allows Clockblocker to get through his day is like, I, I at least I can I can imagine a future that's good and try not to look too hard at the fact that it may not actually come to pass. Right. Um, right. And what's what's extra interesting is that she's she she seems to think she's coping really well. <laughs> and I don't know if I don't know if that's true. I, that may be the opposite of true. I mean, she's coping really well in the sense that she isn't like dissolving into tears, but um she hasn't been doing great either. The, no. This, the, her 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 where her character is right now is not a good place for her. No. And I, I don't think she's aware of that though. No, and it's it's like we we talked about Taylor's realization and her her removing that mask and trying to to center herself and become who she is but we're seeing in in this attempt to redefine who Taylor is redefine who she is this general like lost nature like she's not she she's not sure what to do she's not sure who she is like she she keeps grasping at at ways to define her identity but also readily falls back on old habits very quickly like we saw how quickly she fell back on i'm with the undersiders now we see how quickly she falls back on justifying certain actions we saw it last week with um with the use of the Endbringer and and kind of writing it off as well they broke the rules um we see her fall back into this old behavior very quickly and it's because you know like there, there it's one thing to to sit there and say i regret what i did and i want to change and like we said with riley it's another thing to actually do it and that's kind of where where Taylor's at right now, and it's yeah, it's a very precarious place to be. Yeah, and and we'll see where she heads through the the rest of this part of the story. Yeah. So yeah, she just kind of offhandedly asks her passenger if it's going to hold back against Scion. No response, of course. Of course. Tattletale mentions how they're at the top of the heap now, uh, communicating with all the heaviest hit- hitters in the world. Taylor doesn't find this particularly inspiring or or positive. Yeah, which which ties back into Taylor's like continuing inferiority complex on top of all this other stuff we just talked about. She has probably had the most successful run in the history of this world. Like, like, yes, she's lost, um, but she's survived. She's survived being a villain. She survived murdering one of the most powerful capes. Uh, she's still alive here at the end of the world where Cylon is just casually killing people. And, and she is an instrumental tool in this continuing fight. And yet... When when confronted with it, her response is, "We're not we're not big leaguers, Tattletale, because it's all about strength to her. It's all about this raw this idea of raw power, and she just feels like she does not have that." Yeah, I think if she were looking at herself from the outside, she she absolutely would. It's it's just her yeah. her yeah. yeah her psychology. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Taylor mentions that Doormaker is napping, and Tattletale responds that Doormaker doesn't sleep. It seems that he's left one doorway open in the vicinity, but he now isn't responding to Hales. Lisa immediately decides that they're breaking camp and heading out. 
she she takes it very seriously actually that the the, the doors aren't appearing. She even tells her mercenary to presume she's dead if she doesn't get in touch within 24 hours. Yeah, and very quickly we shift gears into the main conflict of the arc, right? Which is which is that aftermath of the Case Fifty Three uh, Cauldron invasion. Um, we we you and I and the readers know, of course, what happened to your maker, and we know how serious it is. But Tattletale's like immediate and darkly serious reaction kind of demonstrates that the level of that seriousness. It's, it's like we 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 go through this cycle of things getting bad to worse, and we've been going through this cycle a lot, and. And it keeps it keeps happening. And seeing the character who tends to know things react that way is is very intentional and very uh, tension raising. Yeah, I agree with that. I also like that she gives kind of a personal nod to this mercenary who she's talking to. It reminds us that she that she had her little her little uh, oh, yeah. uh, her little character change where she decided that she she actually cared about people now. Yeah. Um, it's it's such a a little thing, but like it, it goes back to, and I think there's something we're going to talk about a couple more times this this episode that the the moments that Wildbo finds to insert character in places where you wouldn't think it it needs it, and there, it's like it's not like necessary to the plot character moments. It it doesn't really change anything besides getting you to understand who these people are a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think I'll save my comment there until we get to to a bit later on. But there's there there are structural reasons, I think, why. Why we get so many of these small character beats, uh, because and I think that they they help build toward and contextualize the more important character beats that, that are more focused on. But without all of the little interstitial one line beats um you wouldn't be prepared or receptive for those for those big ones absolutely yeah that's a great point yeah so the simurg accompanies them through the portal as they depart she's cosmetically improved all of her guns to be stylized with wings so that now they appear as extensions of her wings in space behind her (laughs) the simurg just continues to be one of the creepiest things ever and I love, I love the detail with which Wildbow describes her movements. They, they continue to delight me. And if, if you look at what he does, he mixes like childish imagery with straightforward descriptions of the movement. So you get these wonderful lines like, like someone playing with hopscotch on the moon. The Seamurg set one foot down on a roof, hopping forward, set another foot on the very edge and pushed herself off. And, and you take that kind of childish imagery um, combined with her just casually and continuously like tinkering with weapons, kind of like a kid sitting in the corner playing with toys. And it's so weird and disturbing, especially especially when you combine that with what we know about the Seamurg, that every movement she has it has purpose behind it. She can't see the present. She feels no emotion. These things she's doing are not for herself they're for everyone else around her. And you combine that on top of just the casual childishy creepiness of it. And it's, it's terrifying. Yes, I agree. Um, we, I, Lisa also adds, um, I think she borrows their perception powers as long as she's tapped into them. Might be why she's attached to me. So basically she's saying the simmer can borrow powers of people she's around. So now she's, probably borrowing Lisa's extremely useful power. So good job giving her access to that power. Yeah. I just want one person to come into the room and admit that this whole thing was just a really fucking terrible plan. 
Yeah, right. Um, so they consider whether Simurg making cosmetic changes to her weapons means anything. Is this aimed at terrorizing the humans, or does it, does it suggest that Scion can feel fear? Why not both? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, like I said, we know that everything she does is part of some long, complicated cause and effect chain that we can't see or even contemplate. And as we discussed above, like every every movement has purpose. So yeah, it's 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 everything. It's she's she's playing a game that we can't even comprehend. Yeah, that's fun. So through the portal, uh, Vista has folded up huge swaths of the world like a rug. There's no people or very few people around. So the Manton limit doesn't really keep her from making super highways from point A to point B. They've also layered Silk Road's power on top of Vista's. This is like the uh, biggest fucking silver lining I've ever seen. It's like, yeah. hey, there's no people, so your power is more useful. Hur- hooray. <laughs> hey, Everybody's this is, dead. This is really enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is really fun to visualize, too. Yeah, I, I it like is. this a lot. It is. It's cool. So at the central hub in Brockton Bay, they find Vista, Kidwin, and the Knave of Hearts. I love how they all react to the Seamer arriving with, uh, with these guys. Yeah. Taylor goes to check on their people while Tattletale helps this group find the remaining open portals. And again, we're getting a little, a little tiny bit of character flavor here and there um, because as Taylor and Tattletale approach the group, we give this line where, where Taylor mentions that she only has 12% capacity in her battery, um, an hour of two of flight left. And it's a great way of saying to the reader, time is running out without actually coming out and saying time is running out. Um, and I like, I like that, like in this moment, we see, despite all these failures, despite the fact that they have seemingly lost Cauldron and they've lost every battle they've had, the, the remaining capes are mobilizing. Gimel is, is transforming into a staging area. Miss Militia has taken command. There's still a little bit of hope in this moment. It's a very small amount of it, but, but I think the tone of the rest of this chapter in particular seems to match that hope. There's like this kind of tense jokiness, um, th- that, that people, tend to have when they're sitting around kind of waiting for that final fight. But, but it's, it's good to see a little bit of hope in here. And of course we will immediately squash that. Yeah. That's, that's why it's there to be squashed. (laughs) So out of possibly guilt, she approaches the Chicago wards before she approaches the undersiders. They tell her that Satter and the Vegas dark capes are going to check out Cauldron's sudden disappearance. Yeah. Which like everyone is like, this is probably a bad call, but I mean like, it's the only call they have. Yeah. Like, they don't have a ton of resources. Yeah. 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 There's a few nice beats in here of some gentle hazing of romp by the other wards. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think that that fits that tense, but jokey kind of tone. We, we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I love that romp is this, ta- this character that Taylor just recruited that the story never actually explicitly said that. And it's just this fun little bonus for the people that, that caught it. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. Yeah. I also wanted to point out here that Rachel asks where Lisa is, which is like the first time that's ever happened. And Imp gives yeah. her a really hard time for it. But this is absolutely a setup that will pay off later. Um, and we've said many, many, many times before, Rachel is a fundamentally different person than the first time we've met her. And we see this explicitly with her interactions with Taylor. But I think we see here it's not just Taylor. She's she's grown to a point where it's not just this bond with Taylor that, that keeps her with these people. Yeah, yeah, and that's really it's really nice. There's so much more focus on Rachel mm-hmm. here. I mean, obviously we've been physically away from Rachel for a while, but uh, we're we're coming to see 
I mean, I think it's fair to say she she may have grown more than any other character in in the time skip. I, I think I think so, and I think like we see that not like it, the story is focusing more on her because she's inserting herself into the narrative more. She's not hanging back and just like following Taylor blindly. She's making herself useful. She's making herself known. She's putting herself into conversations, and she's she's aiding in the conflict in more than just physical ways. So, so we, we talk about her more and it's, it's great. It's, it's it's so far my favorite arc of, of the the story is what Rachel went through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, Rachel says somebody was asking if they could try dosing her dog with some leftover lab rat formula. Taylor thinks that it's worth a try, but they decided to get Rachel to memorize some techno babble to relay to the Cape who was offering the stuff to Uh. uh, mess with his head. And this is one of those scenes that I wish we could have seen play out because I'm sure it would have been hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, I know. It's so sad. So sad that this is interrupted. That's yeah. the saddest thing about this. It is. There's nothing else bad except for the fact that this got interrupted. Yes. So Grace corners Taylor about wearing black now and possibly not planning to join the hero side ever. Taylor admits that part of the reason why she's made this decision is indeed because they failed their mission. And then uh, Grace Grace basically says, I know, I get that. I get that there's other reasons, like the fact that you love those guys and you never loved us. Cool, makes sense. I liked you guys, but you didn't love us. No, I said. Ouch. Ouch. This, yeah. I, th- I think this goes back to that, what we talked about at the time of the, the time skip, though. Um, we, we understand why Taylor would choose the Undersiders over the wards because we've been with them longer and we weren't there for this whole two out two year time frame um but i think we are we are with the words just long enough to feel the sting of these words still though which i think is is very well done yeah right and and i like how the the words seem not to take it too hard but you can you like you just kind of feel like it is sad for them to hear this yeah and it's like she, like she never really talked to them about it she just kind of left yeah and this is like this is the first time she's really talked to them about it's like no yeah this is the decision i've made um this it's the end of the world this is kind of why but she never really gave them their moment and treated them like people that that she cared about (laughs) so yeah 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 it's true and i think that this gets into an aspect of taylor that i think we'll, we'll touch on a little bit more in the coming chapters we We've we've already discussed why Taylor abandoned Skitter, and we've discussed how Taylor has chosen to remove her mask and become Taylor again. But we really haven't gotten into the specifics of of why Taylor made this choice. Why did Taylor abandon Weaver? And I think because Weaver represents failure is 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 something that, that seems to be accurate, but it's a little a little simplistic. But I, I think we'll get we'll get into this more in detail a bit later. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, is it Grace. Yeah, Grace tells her that uh, Golem is also pulling away and Cuff tells her that Cuff will forgive Taylor if she goes and talks to Golem about it. This is another one of those scenes that I really, really wanted to see, Matt. I really wanted this to happen. I really wanted Taylor to get to sit down with Golem and have a conversation about how he's doing and what he's going through. She she just kind of left him. So we haven't seen we've seen hints at how he's doing post Jack failure, but um, we don't we don't really get a really close eye into his psyche and and it's because Taylor's not really focused on him anymore. She sees him more as a tool than a person at this point, which is yeah, it's a bummer. 
yeah, I think I think they both probably feel like they failed. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I think it is cool that he uh, eventually comes along on this next mission, though. That's, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's good. Um, yeah. So suddenly, abruptly, people are moving. They've got word that Scion is hitting the Earth Samek settlement. And as people scramble to get on ships, Scion appears here at this location and starts to knock the ships out of the sky. Well, fuck. Yeah. So this time, Scion isn't just nuking them from high altitude. He is wading down into the midst of the defending capes and picking out individuals to kill one-on-one. Taylor team prepares to fight, and Foil takes aim, then shoots. Scion grabs the bolt out of the air. Yeah, um, there's a lot... There's a lot of build up to this moment, right? And I think we we take our time and should like point out that the Taylor's noticing that um that that Foil is like slowly like br- like holding her breath and doing all the stuff and and I think it's almost like outside the narrative build up, like outside of Taylor's mi- mindset almost because we personally know that Foil has the power called Sting, that ancient weapon that was the thing that entities used to kill you to kill each other. So this is a big deal in this moment. Like we think this thing might be able to actually hurt Scion. And then of course the air is completely removed from that when he just wheeled around and caught it. Yep. And I like very, very, very dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Like we almost hold our breath as foil does. And I think in these lines, just like in the past, Wild Bill uses individual paragraphs to emphasize, to both emphasize and, and minimize the impact. Like, it's sudden and, and it's small. Like, Scion, like there's just one word, one paragraph. Scion wheeled around and caught it. Boom. Um, it, like, like it was nothing. Like he saw it coming. Like it, it never had a, a chance. And th- there's a way, like you could look at this fight. And this is how I thought things were going to actually go that in this moment that like Scion's going to show up. Foil shoots him, actually hurts him and he flees. And then we have this moment of victory or, or partial victory where we said, hey, something's effective, and then we regroup and, and form an organized attack. But uh, no, that's not Worm. And uh, and as soon as Scion wheels around and catches that bolt, we kind of know exactly where this fight is heading. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, I don't know how you could still be that optimistic at this point in the story, Scott. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. No, no, I know. I'm, I'm kind of the same. Like, maybe, maybe Wild Bill will take pity on them now. <laughs> no? Still no? Nope. No. So Scion aims to kill Foil in response to this, and Perrin grabs her with a stuffed arm and hurls her far, far away. Yeah, and like I like that even in this moment, Wildbow can't help but feed us just a little bit more hope because Foil like stands her ground and touches one of uh, Cuff's saw blades right before she's flung away by an inflatable cloth hand. <laughs> Um, so you're like, oh no, this is it. Like he's distracted by trying to kill her and then the, the saw blade's going to come through and that's, what's going to do it. But of course, of course, no. Um, yeah. and again, we get, we get little character detail sprinkled in here, Matt, because like we, we point out specifically that, that Parian's throw was not a simple throw, but a reckless inhumanly strong one. And this is not Parian just casually throwing away her girlfriend to safety. This is desperate. This is unthinking. This is pure emotion. This is like she's not thinking about anything else but get foil out of here now. And it's rough and yeah. uncontrolled. Yeah, I think I paused for a second and was like, foil has the ability to like land safely from a from being thrown several miles, right? I, I, I think. <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Yeah. So so Scion is going on, on this rampage, and Taylor observes that he's maximizing pain and suffering over raw destruction, experimenting. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about Scion's motivation more in the coming chapter. There's there's a moment where Lisa compares him to a child uh, who's growing up, and I think that's a great place to talk about it. But for the moment, I just want to say the idea of your antagonist just fucking with people because he can is great. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. From a narrative perspective, it's not like a good thing. <laughs> I think sometimes people take my quotes out of context and then make it sound like I'm a crazy asshole. Yeah, no, you already said it, Scott. Damn it. Yeah, you can't can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the simmer comes through the portal and Taylor thinks, time for an act break. Um, it's <laughs> I, I, What she actually thinks is it's the beginning of the end. Um, I feel like which, it's been the beginning of the end for like <laughs> a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's it's more like the ball. We we have left the um, you know, we we said last arc was a breather arc, and and this is this is the first, you know, as usual, the first chapter of our new arc is the setup for the tone and what's going to be happening in this arc, and I think it's very uh, ominous that the last sentence of this arc is uh, it's the beginning of the end. Yeah, you're so, absolutely right. I I don't think. We're going to get much more lowering of action yeah, yeah. Uh, until we get to the end. Yeah. So we get to the climax. So, yeah. So yeah, 29.2. The fight continues at an intense pace. Scion sweeps severing beams through the crowd, and most of our main characters are saved by Parian scooping them up in a giant arm. But many are not. Many lose limbs or, or are killed. Yeah. Who Who knew the giant stitched cloth arms would be so important in a battle against a golden god? Yeah. The thing, the thing that I wanted to talk to you about a minute, and I love, I love how this chapter opens up because we start with Taylor kind of waxing philosophically about how tiny and insignificant they all are. And, and we, we have her go right into the ant metaphor again. I, like, and, and I think this is, this is, I want to call out because we're specifically using the insect versus humans metaphor again to paint a clear picture of how insignificant we are are to scion we've used cockroaches or we've used ants we've used other insects and we're falling back on this metaphor again and i think it makes sense because not only is it extremely apt to how scion operates and how powerful he is but but here in the story where a main character can literally control ants and cockroaches that metaphor takes on a, a much bigger meaning because we've seen what happens when we get enough of those ants together we've seen what someone can do when we control them and have them strike out at once we've seen the power of that and so we're, we keep calling back to these metaphor this is deliberate this is set up this is leading us somewhere and i think it's so clever how we do it yeah yeah i i, I agree that's uh that's really awesome yeah I, but more than that i i wanted to talk to you about the word uses of, of the opening of this chapter because like we said they're like we use words like small like spec like insignificant, like ants. And then we have this hard cut, like like Taylor's talking really abstractly about their place in the world and uh, how, how their planet doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, how they don't matter in the grand scheme of things. And then we, we have all that and then we cut back to present action. And we the first thing we do in that present action is we have Scion's pencil-thin beam. And I think that matches the kind of small word usage the, the beats around the small the insignificant the tiny so so we we transition from taylor's like introspective abstract thing and but carry that small imagery forward 
um, to this small pencil thin beam. Only here, this thing is is powerful enough to absolutely rip through and destroy everything in its path. And it's, it's as if we're subtly reminding the reader that just because something is small and thin and possibly insignificant doesn't mean it's not extremely extremely powerful and it's like these are the little clever things we do to to set to set up things that you might not even notice yeah that's fantastic i I definitely didn't consciously notice that but yeah it's it's like uh yeah it's a it's a small injury to your femoral artery it's yeah not not gonna be something you ignore (laughs) yeah um yeah yeah i that's that's really awesome i like that a lot so lung is here uh and he is now transforming more rapidly than we expect or than taylor expects i think we we sort of expect it because we know that he's sort of been charging up in prison and he's eager to fight king of cups is also here and and he's able to uh his power involves creating phantom limbs that he can kind of use to semi-heal uh the people that are around him so he kind of replaces people's missing limbs with like a phantom limb yeah yeah i i like I like this this whole thing because Lung has finally gotten this opportunity to face something that he feels worthy of fighting, and he's been charging up for two two years, and this is the moment. And then we see King of Cups' phantom limb is preventing Lung's chopped off leg from growing and transforming, and you have this moment where he's like, turn it off. And it's yeah. kind of this funny beat in the midst of like chaos and terror. Um, you need some of those sometimes. They're important. But again, it's it's subtle background stuff that doesn't add up to too much relevance but but seeds the world with that detail that makes it feel lived in yeah it's also kind of cinematic where it's it's almost like the camera is is giving you these little snippets of visual imagery from all over the battlefield keeping you you know uh, tapped into all these different characters yeah it's kind of amazing how far we've come from those first uh big battles back in in the early arcs even before we had leviathan the first big battle against um uh, purity and her her crew where there was tons of capes around and i think i think you can see you can track Wildbow's progress in his ability to describe and explain these scenes as they've grown which is absolutely necessary because the scope has has grown as well so you can see his his skill with the craft to lay out the geography of these kind of battles uh has has definitely accelerated yeah i think there's a lot to talk about there um but uh won't talk about that right this minute but yeah his his sense of what to focus on in in the battles i think i think has changed and and been refined to the point where um we're getting a very distilled dose of what is most important to understand about the battle yeah absolutely so at a certain point scion takes a shot at vastagwenye who has actually been just sort of hanging back and she gets saved by Curling Man. And then she kind of re- retreats to watch from a, a greater distance. Stamp Fairy Queen. So sneaky. I know. Taylor lands beside Rachel, who is struggling to get Bastard out of his dying monster body. He's going to bleed out shortly because uh, one of his one or two of his legs have been cut off. And, and apparently um, Bastard has basically one blood supply, regardless of the fact that it's sort of two organisms. So... He's going to bleed out. So uh, Taylor tells Rachel to go find the guy with the lab rat doses while Taylor stays and tries to tend the bastard. Instead of helping out injured or dying capes, Taylor chooses to keep trying to save bastard. And she thinks, but the reality was that I'd cast aside the strict ideas of right and wrong that I told myself I'd be Taylor instead of Weaver or Skitter. And this is what I wanted to do. 
because I was a hypocrite. I was selfish, arrogant, short-sighted, and even stupid at times because I could only face the situation with what I knew. And I knew that bitch wouldn't fight any further if we just let bastard die. And if our team started falling apart, I wouldn't know what to do at all. Yeah. So I want to talk about this with you for a bit because I think this is very interesting and, and kind of a very big key into Taylor's mindset over these past few arcs. And and again, I think I'm not really interested in discussing the choice itself, like the idea that she chose the dog over the injured human. I don't think there's enough information in the text to make any kind of real judgment on the morality of that choice or the appropriateness of that choice. And And, and honestly, it's not really important to what's happening here i think the important part again is is what this says about taylor what what it says about her her mindset and how she looks at herself and the world yeah (laughs) yeah so so we have taylor um becoming skitter at the beginning she she becomes skitter to run away from her problems to grasp for power that she didn't have before and then she becomes skitter the villain and and as this person she did horrible things and justified them uh, by being uh, for for what was good for her people and to keep up that image of villainy and then she she realized that that was making her unhappy and and had a, a little a little push from Dinah and so she decided to become a new person she decided to become Weaver she decided to become a hero and as Weaver Taylor played this long game in order to prevent the world from ending she she banged head with superiors she made enemies she stayed disconnected from the people who would have been her friends and allies and then Weaver failed so. Uh, so that didn't work. So goodbye. Bye, Weaver. Um, so now she's, she's, she's moved on from Skitter. She's moved on from Weaver and she's trying to figure out who she wants to be. And she goes, well, Skitter made me unhappy and, and Weaver was a failure. So why, what do I got left? I got Taylor. Why don't I just be me? And as I think as, as you and I said the last couple of weeks, there's good to that. There's good to recognizing that you need to be yourself and you need to be who you are. Um, and, and, and there's good in casting off your mask and embracing the real you. I think that's healthy and, and humanizing. But <laughs> for all that talk, how much has Rachel, uh, has Taylor, I don't know why I said Rachel there. That was weird. <laughs> how much has Taylor actually changed? Um, how, how, how different is she? Because we see here that, that being Taylor, that, that it, it's seemingly just another mask that she's putting on. It's still just another way to justify actions because she's describing herself here as a hypocrite, as selfish, as arrogant, as short-sighted and stupid. And these are not traits that I think you or I would ever assign to Taylor. That's not who she is. Um, but she's, she's, she's lost and she's searching for this person and she's found, um, a person who she, she thinks she is and she's using that mask that identity as a way of justifying things yeah right i I think that there's there's what she wants to do which in this moment is save bastard yeah and help her friend who she cares a lot about um and now she's she's trying on okay now i've realized i don't need i don't need the skitter justification of terrifying the people who are watching me or or anything like that and i don't need the weaver justification of how does this connect to saving the world from jack slash in some way um so so what what do i use to justify this sort of awkward uncomfortable decision that i'm making well i guess i'll i'll just say that uh i am a hypocrite and yeah it's interesting (laughs) It, it reminds me a lot of, I think it's very realistic because it reminds me a lot of like 
when you go to a new school when you're a kid or when you go off to college or even when you start a new job to a lesser extent, because by the time you're an adult, you sort of figured things out more, but you, you, there's, there's generally a sense of like, Oh, now I can, there's a new set of people. I can now be myself or some variation of that thought. I think that's fairly normal. And yeah. what, what you realize fairly quickly is like, Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't actually mean anything. Like I, I, my behaviors are not actually connected to this fantasy self that I have in my head too, too, too well. So, um, it, it's, it's kind of like Taylor is, she thinks that like, Oh, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be Taylor now. And, and yeah. it's in her head, it, it makes sense as a choice. But in reality, she is this person who has been doing these things. We've been, we've been watching for millions of, of words now. Right. Um, right. I mean, that, that's, that's the honest truth is here. As much as we talked about masks, as much as we talked about hiding behind identities, there is part of Taylor that is Skitter. There is part of Taylor that is Weaver. She is part of these things. And like, in this quest to find out who she is and to to latch onto this new identity, she's kind of trying to say that no, those were those, and now I'm me, and me, Taylor, does this. And it's still, you're absolutely right. Like, have we seen her do something or not do something she wanted to do, really? Like, for, for the most part, if it's something that Taylor wants to do, she's she's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed from Skitter. That hasn't changed from Weaver. That hasn't changed. The justification behind it has changed. How, how she justifies it to herself, how she justifies it to those around her definitely has changed. But if she wants to do something, she's going to do it. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I think we can, I think we can move on and, yeah, and keep yeah. track of that because there's a definitely. number of further things that she does in this arc that fit that bill. So at this point, the Queen of Swords uses her power. She joins together a number of powers with her network of lines connecting various capes and then detonating them in a way that hits Scion with a combination of effects. That's a really cool power. That, like, yeah. It's, we're, Matt, we're on arc 29. We're a million, like, I don't know how many words in this book we are, presumably 1.3 million or something by now. Yeah, something and we're like still coming up with new cool powers that I'm just like, Huh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So speaking and, of speaking of this next guy that comes in, yeah. Well, what what I like about um about this part of the story is like we don't really get a rundown on on any of these suits capes, like what what their power really is and how it really works. It's just kind of like she's drawing lines. Taylor's like, okay, what do the lines do? Okay, it looks like she's connecting powers together in some way, and then. Scion is hit with with effects and then we are we are completely left on our own to be like okay well maybe maybe what she's doing is she's basically hitting him with like a bullet that is consisting of all the effects of all the powers that she tied together Mm -hmm. and and it it appears to be pretty effective but that's that's not told to us we're left to put together a lot of this stuff right right yeah yeah so following this vista and kidwin and tattletail came in to reinforce gavel and crane the harmonious arrived too i don't know whether i've been like so (laughs) not really thrilled about reinforcements I, it's just like oh look more people that are probably gonna die yeah yeah right more cannon fodder which uh is exactly what happens right yeah gavel is actually durable enough to take hits from scion and his weapon can block his shots without being destroyed gavel pounds him a few times but each hit is less effective than the last scion also seems to have uh have to like work at it but he, he finally damages gavel's body enough that he can stick his hand into like a crack that he's made and then disintegrate Gavel's body. Yeah, and I think the important part, the important beat of this is that Scion 
uh, figures out what what power Gavel has, and then and then he adjusts and chooses the exact thing that Gavel is the weakest to. And we kind of see in this moment that Taylor realizes that based on what she knows about Gavel, she would do the exact she would she would adjust to the exact same strategy that Scion has here. She's oh yeah, it's like you 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 pepper him with these laser thin blasts to focus the damage uh and 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 keep doing it and that works so so basically we're seeing here that scion basically has taylor's toolbox but like on steroids yeah that's uh that's terrifying the next scion grabs the king of cups and threatens people in the crowd until cups's reaction indicates that the queen of swords is important to him so then scion grabs her and then he squishes them into the ground together which is just a horrifying scene yeah yeah. The queen, queen of Swords dies, uh, and the King of Cups uh, seems to have a second trigger, or at least that's implied. It's never outright said. Uh, so um, suddenly, all of the dozens or however many cape present, capes present, all witness this this trigger event, and they watch the warrior entity shed parts of itself in preparation for its arrival. While the partner is distracted, they see it select the world, select the future, and then ensure that it has the strength to succeed in any conceivable future. And and this vision basically is constitutive of everyone seeing that Zion has made sure to make himself undefeatable and, and ending with this this refrain of we lose reverberating through through their whole psyche. Yeah. This is this is absolutely devastating and, and it, it reveals the, the, the true truth of what fighting scion means it's something that even taylor was like trying to avoid coming to realize that that he's planned for everything that he's granted himself the exact powers to ensure that he will win every single time and and you stop to realize that like i think lisa says it specifically later on that if there was anything in this vision that could help him he wouldn't have let them see it um but you kind of realize that that scion probably like by picking the king of cups and specifically having him indicate who is most important to him and then killing that person he wanted the king of cups to trigger which means he wanted everyone to see this vision and see how hopeless it was and and it's it's such this absolutely morale destroying moment and it's in this moment that i realized that since jack since jack the failure around jack we've kind of seen this you could almost call it repetitive cycle in, in, in the story. Um, we have the capes get together, they plan and, and execute on that plan. And then Scion shows up, things go wrong. He squashes the plans in an instant and a bunch of people die. The capes scatter. Um, but then our characters come up with a new idea and breathe new hope into the world and then rinse and repeat. And, and this has happened at least three times now since the battle against, against Jack and the, the, the slaughterhouse a lot. Um, and I think it'd be easy to just, write this off as like repetitive lazy writing um but no like absolutely not this is not just stretching out an ending this is not just stretching out the story this is a a purposeful cycle that intentionally repeats over and over again to stress just how fucked everything is like you feel it like it's like there's there's nothing there's nothing you can do and and the crazy thing about this is I see the clues to how to defeat Scion. I see them. Like the, the story does not hide 
these very like very sneakily like there are there are moments where you specifically see this is his weakness this is how you could execute on this you see this but even in this moment it's like i don't i don't see how they could come to a place to actually exploit those like they're just they're just fucked they're fucked and it's that repetition that gets you there that gets you that saps you of any optimism that puts you in the mind of your main character which when you're telling a story from first person you absolutely need to be in her mind through these moments and that's why it's so engaging and also so devastating yeah and there's a lot of narrative mechanisms in play that make it not feel repetitive i think because we're, we're changing settings a lot oh absolutely um, yeah we we have this antagonist who 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 sort of and lisa's about to basically say this that he's sort of evolving um from from scene to scene where every time he attacks them he kind of has a different goal behind it um and and he's explore he's exploring and experimenting. That's that's fundamental to to the whole thing, and that's we've known that since the moment he became the antagonist. Um, yeah. I also wanted to talk about. So so for one thing, I, I didn't I, I didn't consciously notice or, or 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 realize perhaps that he intentionally tortured King of Cups to cause him to have a second trigger. I think that's quite likely because we know that he can see the shards and he could very well be like, Oh, this guy, if I did this, he would have a second trigger that may or may not be true or, or, or intended, but I, I think it's quite possible. Yeah. Um, um, but I will like say like that th- this, this moment of, of all of the capes like flattened out on the ground with the trigger event and, and, um, him just standing there and letting them have that. I can just like imagine the scene being directed by Lars von Trier for some reason. <laughs> it's it's just very like cinematic to have. I, I don't know if everyone actually physically falls down, but like this this image of everyone stopping and then him stopping just so that they can feel the psychological impact of of the vision, even though he's just been in, you know he's covered in gore and he just smashed two people into the ground. Um, and then of course he finishes it up by killing the King of Cups. Yeah. Um. um who who uses his new power to to cause phantom arms to reach out of every surface for miles apparently which i, ch- I think is another one of those images that that is is very haunting this, yeah because the, they come these, out of people too like yeah. they sprout out of people too it's like it's so horrifying and then it's just sorry yep yep didn't Sion even matter finishes him that's it yep that didn't help. Yeah, like that. I think that's another cool thing is like we've been we've been primed by the story to think, oh, a second trigger event means Deus Ex Machina, basically. Right. Like it, it means, oh, oh, we get a we get an out. We oh, something good, something good's gonna happen now because somebody's second triggered, and that means um, they're gonna get something that's gonna help them out of the situation they're in. Nope, nope. he just kills him. Yep, immediately. Yep. Yeah. So at this point, though, the Seamurg finally steps in and abruptly fires her guns. Sion then disappears and reappears behind her. And this is the moment that I realized just how upside down everything in the world of this story has become. Because throughout the book, we've had Sion fight each of the three original Endbringers, and we've been there for these scenes. We had we had Leviathan, the first one, and then we had the Seamurg during the migration arc, and then we had uh, him killing Behemoth. So we've had Sion represent this almost deus ex machina that comes in and saves them in the nick of time and and now we've completely inverted that like we have suddenly the exact opposite of that and it's like how 
crazy have things become now that this this thing this this moment of joy we felt every time scion showed up has been so inverted that we're cheering on the giant monster now yeah i I, it's fantastic yeah yeah i mean so slight aside but this is one of the more subtle ways in which my role in this podcast has been a, a, a trapeze act because every time for most of the story that scion shows up i have to pretend that i'm happy about this (laughs) <laughs> and then i'm yeah. not like jeez yeah this is the guy who kills everybody yeah yeah <laughs> i didn't even think of that yeah that's that's hats off to you sir <laughs> oh it's been fun <laughs> um yeah so 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 rachel is um they're they're still struggling to save bastard and rachel says go help tattletale there was something in her voice something that suggested she did care after all Imps ribbing aside, Rachel did value Tattletale on some level. Yeah, not much to say here, except I, I absolutely love this. And uh, there's like Matt the beats here, where while she was having the trigger event, she accidentally smashed the vial, and then we see as Taylor flies away that like Rachel is just like shoveling dirt, presumably the dirt that soaked soaked up the vial juice, and just shoveling it into her mouth, into into uh-huh. Bastard's mouth and Bastard's wound, and like this desperate like rage induced like fear driven attempt to get the thing to to trigger and get the the serum to work and it's like god it's so powerful yeah yeah it's it's all it's all very visual too yeah yeah so now blasting winier has stepped into the fight uh using gavel's spirit but it's ineffective because he's already sort of attenuated to gavel's power cyan um yeah, so so Tattletail says that he's like a living portal. As fast as he can be hurt, he replaces the damage with new material from his bottomless well. But Matt, we we know we know it's not bottomless. That, I guess so. Yeah, we we know that. We know every time he uses his power, he takes time off of his clock. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's a it's a very yeah. it's a very long clock. Yeah, it's a very long amount of time, but it's yeah. not bottomless. Yeah, look, there's hope. Look, I'm just trying to can, grasp for hope. You can get there. Yeah, you can you can dig the china with the spoons, Scott. Sure. <laughs> oh <Yeah>. Jesus. <laughs> Tattletail says we could change it up, hit him with enough effects in ways he can't predict. So why don't we? I asked. Just look, Tattletail said. Two hundred capes still recovering. Some I suspected playing dead, morale crushed. Yeah, and this is kind of what I was hinting about uh, earlier that that the, the clues for how to defeat Sion are, are here. Like they're, 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 they're spread throughout the story. It's not, it's not like defeating Sion is not a puzzle. It's just a nightmare of, um, planning an organization to, to actually execute on any kind of plan that would work. Um, it's, it's beyond everyone's ability, especially as he continually just crushes morale. So yeah. I think once again, we're seeing, uh, kind of hints at, these things but and we're moving towards okay what's the solution how do we do this and 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 i'll I'll get to what my solution for this is but okay we'll save that sounds good so now lung as big as leviathan dives in to fight alongside ghost idolin and glastic wenyeh who alternately strip powers from the wounded and take powers from the dead um which is just insane i mean basically this is this is uh three of the most powerful entities in the story at this point fighting fighting uh, Sion at the same time. So Lung yeah. makes his move, crushing Sion to the ground. 
Crane the Harmonious steps in to support, using her powers to ensure that every other cape's power hits the mark, which is apparently what she can do. Uh, Scion snipes Crane, and the shot clips Kid Wind, too. No. So he's dead, right? Like, it's like, it clips him, and then something in his suit detonates. And we get pretty, pretty I'm, obvious hint that, that he's dead. I'm genuinely uncertain about this, so I'll just... Okay. I'll just well, not answer I'm gonna, that. I'm going to pretend like he's dead and I'm going to give him his eulogy, which is he was he was Kid Win, And in the end, he was truly here to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, buddy. That's, Goodbye. That's beautiful. <laughs> I still so, think you're a goober, but <laughs> don't deserve to die. Yeah, it was an honorable death. <laughs> so... So, so finally, Bastard arrives, growing as he approaches into a undifferentiated mass of muscle and bone and mouths, and he seems to grow fast enough that Scion can't keep him pared down. Miss Militia uses a huge bomb, and another cape directs the blast so it doesn't kill everybody present. And then the remaining Bastard blob falls into the bay and grows freely across the water. Yay? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know what to feel about this. This is better than the situation we were in. I like how Taylor like is really casual to like, um, the, the bastard blob problem will probably solve itself before it gets actually dangerous. <laughs> yeah. We've got other things to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Um, Chevalier and Leviathan arrive with some protectorate capes and Scion departs to hit his next target. So yeah, that's basically basically it. Is he, he's like he's like yeah, I've done my job here. Yeah, and he, just, he just leaves. And, and there's no sense whatsoever that that any progress was made. Right, like he's um, not running. He's just yeah. leaving. Right, and and Lisa points out that Taylor didn't uh, do anything during this fight, which yeah, I think is pretty an interesting phrasing. Fucking harsh. Yeah, uh, and and she shakes her head and says, "I'm not going to be on the battlefield next time." Yeah, which is a pretty big decision for Taylor to realize that she's not good at like to realize that she's not good in the center of things and is more useful elsewhere. Like she always kind of wants to be in the middle of things. And so to, to intentionally take herself out of this and move her to a place where she feels more useful is kind of a big deal. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, she normally, even with the Endbringer fights, she would be present and she would do like her, her coordination thing, but there was always a strategy right there and here there's no real, you know, such as it is it's ineffective so yeah we move on to 29.3 and she helps with first aid on the wounded dragon's teeth soldiers at the other attack site legend seems to be trying to boost morale giving a speech with kind of an all according to plan and we're actually hurting him tone slash approach taylor thinks of reasons why his attempts at comforting people are hollow as he's saying them but she doesn't speak up she just kind of lets him do it she appreciates the need for it, I think, uh, and she's trying not to provoke him also because uh, she thinks there might be a sore spot there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that she retains enough of a filter to realize that a man desperately trying to find a positive in the situation doesn't need a lesson from an 18-year-old girl in realism. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting how Taylor, like, throughout this conversation, treats him as kind of the naive one where she's like the battle-weary expert when... Like, Legend's been around. He's yeah. been doing this stuff for a while. And she's like, no, you don't understand. You're wrong. Like, we're actually losing. And it's like, it's it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure he gets it. Yeah. yeah. So he, he actually starts up a conversation with her. And he tells her, 
that he wanted to get the measure of her after she killed his teammate. They talk about how you can feel close to someone that you fight beside, even if you don't really know them. Um, yeah. And, and, and he thinks to himself, uh, now, or he says, actually, now is the moment I call so-and-so out on that less than complete truth they used while we were elbow deep in, in Indonesian cyborg super soldiers. And uh, Taylor says, I think I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but seriously, though, I think Taylor's like the mayor of ability to overlook problematic behavior <laughs> when you're going from crisis to crisis town, um, which funny thing, the longest town name in the world. Yeah. Um, well, but but it is definitely a thing that they both have in common. And and I, I, it's interesting that Taylor's way of dealing with it is to just say, well, that decision was the best I could do at the time, knowing what I knew. Moving on. <laughs> and Legend, Legend, who who yes is like been through like he's he's been not trustworthy and he's not the greatest person in the world but legend's just like uh i don't i don't know about that strategy taylor i don't know how healthy that is i don't know if i want to be like that yeah yeah right yeah then there's a fun little subway burn in the middle (laughs) of (laughs) middle of where (laughs) an empty fast food place now a makeshift hospital eat fresh i thought not likely. Boom. Got it, Subway. Your yeah. sandwiches suck. And, and Taylor still got her, her game, her, uh, her, her, uh, wit game on. Yeah. 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 So witty, um, Taylor. Thank you for that. Yeah. Right. I, I, I wasn't serious. Subway, please sponsor our podcast. Yes. We, please. So Lung, she, she looks over and sees Lung was alone, looking angry, frustrated, almost more agitated than he'd been lo- before or during the fight. His eyes were on Leviathan, who was down by the water. But I didn't get the impression Leviathan was the source of the frustration. I like this because it leads us to unfailingly get Lung's state of mind. He fought Leviathan, and eventually his power sensed that it wasn't really making progress, and it stopped making him grow. And now he's just fought Scion, and he's probably feeling a very similar frustration. Yeah, I mean, he's been saving that transformation power for years. And once again, he's ineffectual. Once again, he came up against a a opponent he could not defeat. He's got to be mad. Yeah. And this this is like a small beat, but it's important because we see Lung join Taylor later in this this arc, and we now understand exactly why he's going with her. Because just like Taylor, he felt ineffectual in that battle, and is going to to search a fight that he can feels he can actually win. Yeah. It's almost like these two characters have some similarities. Yeah. They both don't have dicks. <laughs> uh, good stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, we also check in on many of our other side characters dealing with the aftermath of the battle. Yeah. Um, these are like uh, we see a lot of people acting like the standard. I mean, we see Perrin and Foil together. Um, the, the thing that jumped out to me was this casual mention of Nilbog just engaged in a conversation with Glastig <laughs> casually. Like, what? Crazy, crazy dude, just chilling with the fairy lady. What's yeah. happening? Yeah, I imagine like all of the protectorate capes are like yeah. looking at them out of the corner of their eye. Like, oh, yeah, oh, no. I, I mean, it, it makes sense that he's here. Like, they've let everyone out of prison and stuff, and they need him. But I just, I was not expecting, I was not expecting just to see him casually hanging out in this group of people. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> and we get Tells no, you. we get nothing else on it. It's just that line. Nobog engaged in a conversation with Glastig. <laughs> Moving on. That was yep. just normal now. 
yeah, no, then it kind of tells you where things are. Yeah. So Taylor gets around to saying that she wants to go strike out and find Cauldron. They're fighting losing battle and sending the Vegas dark capes after them is like setting a fox to guard a hen house. Yep. And we got a plan now. Taylor's swinging back into action because she's got she's got that that focus and that plan. She's yep, going to be yep. useful. So um, Lisa says, and, and we, we referred to this earlier, he was a, a blank slate, then almost like a baby, flinging destruction around like a baby practices moving their arms as if to remind himself he could. And then he was like a child in this fight, except for the bit about Queen of Swords. That suggested he'd almost entered, he's almost entering an adolescent phase, something more complex than just raw fear and awe, loss, despair. He's going to start looking for ways to really hurt us. Yeah, so this is great, Matt. Um, and there's like, there's something to be said about Wildbow's idea here to have our people go against this crazy strong guy but skirt around that problem whenever you have crazy planet destruction person of well why wouldn't he just kill them all instantly like this this is something that rears its head in these type of stories a lot and a lot of those plots tend to get around it by creating um an artificial timeline centered around a macguffin or a ritual or that classic blue light in the sky that we see in so many superhero movies but Wildbow doesn't fall into any of those traps and he doesn't go that way. So it, why doesn't Scion just kill everyone right away? Well, because he doesn't want to. His yeah. decision, like any and every decision in the story, is rooted in his character. And that's what makes a good antagonist. That's what makes good conflict. And and like we said, that's part of his weakness. And, and that, again, creates a good, interesting antagonist. It's great. I love, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And and sometimes you do get a villain who wants to hurt the characters more than he wants to destroy everyone. But very often what you see in those situations is a sort of mustache twirling villain style monologuing right. enemy. And uh, as we know, Scion's monologues are famously <laughs> short. Yeah, he, he's definitely not a Bond villain at all. Yeah, um, it, yeah. It, it skirts every kind of big bad trope that you find with someone with this level of power. Um, and it does it in a way that is true to the character and it's just great. It's really great. Yep. Yeah. So everyone agrees that Taylor can be trusted with this mission of going to find cauldron. She says she wants to bring along capes who can't or won't participate in a fight with Scion. And she looks at Canary. Uh, the bosses are okay with this generally since they don't really have views for people like that. Feeling useless. Come join Taylor suicide squad. <laughs> Oh, that is what the, the what this is. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So Defiant gives her a nano dagger and gives her very detailed instructions and documentation on how to keep it functioning. I think this is a nice subtle indication that he's planning for things to get worse. Yeah, I like that Taylor is like, you were more you're more careful with this than you were when the, with the flight pack, and that's funny because like he just handed you a super powerful knife. Of course, he's gonna be a little more careful than the flight pack, but also just like you said, um, not only is he seeming to say that that he might not see her again so he's got to explain all this now but this feeling that you're going to probably need to be using this thing a lot in the near future and you need to understand how it works yeah yeah i wonder if he thought through like she'll put this to good use i can <laughs> i can imagine what taylor would do with this uh, I, um, if if somewhere in the back of defiance mind he thought floaty death knife 
I he I will buy him a drink. <laughs> she thought swinging through a stairwell full of people. Yeah, <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we'll again. we'll get there. Yeah, right. So Defiant and Dragon uh, walk Taylor to the Dragonfly, and she she has a chance to offer them the thanks that she gave the others in her big goodbyes chapter. Yeah, I I, I love this, and I love that she gets to return Dragon's hug from earlier in the book. Um, and and you realize that this whole thing starts with her looking at dragon and and saint's words pop into her head about how dragon is just faking emotion she's not real but then by the end of this this conversation with dragon she's hugging her because because she has in this one moment gone from doubting dragon and 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 listening to saint to fully realizing or fully believing or 90 percent as she says believing that that this person is alive regardless of what saint says this person has emotions this person feels something and i should give her a hug and it's yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I like the little subtle bit where where Dragon seems to be like chiding Defiant on something, and then she has like a small private smile when Defiant reacts to it properly, and <laughs> and it's clearly not for anyone, and that's one of the things that makes Taylor a, a bit more comfortable with her. And yeah. I, I just thought that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. So Taylor takes her small team, including Canary, Golem, Imp, Shadowstalker, Rachel, and Lung on the dragonfly to this small cave somewhere. I mean, it doesn't really matter where exactly it is. It's, yep. They just happen to know that there's a portal there. It's the apocalypse. It's yeah. a place. Yeah, it's a place that they can get to. <laughs> so we meet a number of Vegas capes plus Exalt and Revel. The heroes are trying to use Tinker Tools to ferret out a portal to Cauldron HQ and apparently not having much luck. The Vegas capes chat everybody up very smoothly. Spurs sings some of Canary's old songs to prove that he was a real fan. <laughs> And uh, in the middle of this delightful scene that that we're just enjoying so much, and we just love these Vegas capes, they're yeah, all so great. So great. Taylor susses out that they're all being played. Uh, Exalt, Revel, uh, Vantage, Leonine, and Florit are apparently all fakes. And once they're revealed, they all just morph into six copies of Satirical. Only Spur and Nyx are actually present. Yeah, this is um, one of those, I think, brilliant tonal moments that on, upon a second, re- a second read, you can see exactly what Wildbow is doing throughout this whole section. Um, we we f- first have Spur clearly trying to distract people and, and get on uh, Canary's good side, um, kind of an over-the-top love and obsession. And then we have, in, in retrospect, these really odd moments with both Exalt and Revel. Both are people who we've seen before and are acting just slightly off enough to not really notice it, but kind of just get this feeling that something's weird. Yeah. And like, and you see them both like continuously stressed that like, okay, yeah, we're good. Um, we'll let you, we'll let you know. It's like, just go leave, leave. And it, it comes off on your first read as just kind of strange and you're not sure why. And then on the second read, you see all the little bits, all the little tinkering that made this play like this and it's just it makes me appreciate the writing so much that we get to do that we get to go back and see that tinkering and see how Wildbow subtly set that tone and 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 made everything feel just a little off yeah i really like this quite a lot because even though you're, you're right that it's just just off enough to to you don't even really raise an eyebrow because you're not you're not suspicious of anything in particular you're just like this is what what's going on here yeah and and then and then of course it's it's a nice nice shocking reveal yeah <laughs> what color was your your birthday cake taylor white and blue but you didn't yeah. eat much of it i love the detail when lisa says well that's her armor 
and look at her. <laughs> she obviously yeah. doesn't eat cake. It's, it's just really, really fun little moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and I just like the whole, I feel like, I feel like there's probably some secret unpublished, unpublished, uh, Vegas dark stories somewhere because I just, I love this whole idea of these, um, these, these espionage basically focused capes who, whose powers all basically circle around this exact sort of thing and yeah. how this is a whole other genre. I mean, we've talked about this before, how you can do the horror genre with, with superheroes you do you can do drama, you can do action, and you can apparently do a James Bond movie. <laughs> yep. Yep. Or or uh or Mission Impossible perhaps is more appropriate. Yeah. So they refused uh, having having been revealed, the uh Vegas Capes refused to reveal the portal. Taylor pulls her knife on them and then surprises herself by how angry she is. The Vegas <laughs> Capes tell her that their teammates have the situation in hand. They reveal that the Irregulars assaulted the Cauldron base and, that, and now Satirical's team is fixing the problem. Sure glad Taylor's got that new super knife. <laughs> She's really yeah. pissed off at people fighting amongst each other instead of working together. I'm sure that's not going to go anywhere. No, no. So so at this point, Rachel cold cocks Spur and they bind Nyx to the wall with Golem's hands. And then they move through the portal. So I, mean, I, had, to, I had to look this up and I had to do it in the sneakiest way possible to ensure i'm not spoiling myself but the slaughterhouse nine one was nix with a y right this is a different person this is not a, a nix clone this is a different this is a different person who can also make smoke uh g- gas shaped illusions who yeah. has a very similar name so yeah rather than telling you what's going on here i invite you to speculate well we we saw fenja and, and menja right two yeah. twins who had the same power so i'm assuming they're related in some way and yeah. um maybe tri- either triggered at the same time or something um yeah i don't Let's, yeah it, it threw yeah. me at first because i was like i knew this name and i was like but this is not can't just be a clone yeah yeah no it's definitely um <laughs> especially if you're just going by the audio it's, uh, it's a <laughs> oh, yeah, a, that would be true. Yeah, it's a bit of a hangout. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know the answer, but I'll, I'll just say that 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 uh, we'll you'll, you'll find that eventually. OK, yeah. cool. Yeah. So we move on to twenty nine dot four in the cauldron building. They find signs of a battle. Lisa fills them in on what happened. Huntress smells something and they kick open a door to reveal some brutally assassinated K-63s picked off by Satter's group. We start hitting the beats of Canary persistently hanging back despite the fact that she's wearing power armor. Yeah, I I, I really love the scene setting stuff that this early part of the chapter does. And like you mentioned above, we're, we're kind of shifting genres again here where we're taking the focus off this god like Scion and we're shrinking things down again. We're, we're going into this infiltration mission that is kind of reminiscent of some of that Slaughterhouse a lot stuff we saw a few arcs ago. And and the prose shifts to match that as well. We we see descriptions of the flickering lights, the corridors that look like they belong in a hospital, but without any of the actual purpose of a hospital. And we see the damage from previous fighting. Like hell, we see literal bloody corpses as a uh, as Huntress pokes into a room. Yeah, it's it's all it's all it's all setting the tone, setting the atmosphere that this is something equally tense but different. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's, there's also there's some there, there's something going on with each of the characters, and and it's and it's going to be. Well, I'm not going to point out every single beat because it would honestly take as long as probably reading the chapter would take. But basically, you know, you've got Canary dealing with her um, 
fear. You've got imp dealing with all kinds of stuff, um, some kind of identity crisis thing going on. Uh, you've got Taylor being Taylor. You've got Shadowstalker who is sort of dealing with the fact that she's now following Taylor around. <laughs> yeah. And, and also dealing with the stuff that imp is saying to her. Mm-hmm. You've got, imp, you've got a uh, uh, lung who, who like, he, like we just said, is dealing with kind of trying to find a new way to be relevant since he realized that he couldn't make any difference with Scion. And then you've got Golem who, who is probably the least like, noticeable presence in all of this but but it's also worth paying attention to um but you know still still dealing with he's with what he's dealing with all of these characters are getting their their little moments throughout this chapter yeah and i, I, I just i decided to, to to recap all of them um of course rachel's here too yeah um, and she's <laughs> yeah. being rachel but yeah i mean there's i decided to just kind of recap it now because i'm not going to go into into detail on all of them but I'll just say, like the whole chapter is is structured as the, as they're going deeper and deeper in, in, into this base. But really, the the drama of it is is the evolution of of each of these characters um, as they as they move through their own personal stories. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I, I completely agree. It, it's it's really great. Yeah. So the lights go out, and Taylor momentarily wonders if uh, Shadowstalker just walked into a wire, uh, and then the custodian makes contact. Taylor sort of communicates with her, able to sense her presence via her bugs, perceiving perturbations in the air. Yay, my favorite ghost janitor, <clears throat> trademark, is back. Um, I, I, and I like how this fits into that survival horror type thing we're in now. Like, Taylor is is now, like, just shy of, of literally communicating with a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're like, we, we've set up this atmosphere, like, abandoned hospital with blinking lights and blood and now she's talking to a ghost so we're yeah. really really turning into this the genre stuff pretty hard but like yeah. but as you said all of this is rooted in character which is the best part of genre so it it all works well and i like that imp is is sort of being the audience surrogate here because it forces you to to think like okay you're walking through this hall suddenly it goes pitch dark and then taylor says who's there is someone there no no one's there and then starts talking to someone and you're like, okay, <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, when you're in the creepy hospital and the lights are flickering. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so, so they move further on. Taylor finds binders containing plans, many concerning the evacuation or transmigration, numerous binders full of con- contingency plans for various possible scenarios. And this is of course, all stuff that was done with Accord's assistance. Mm-hmm. And this poor, this poor bastard never got to see any of his plans come to fruition. He's a he's a horrible monster, but he's a tragic horrible monster. Yeah, I can hear him sighing from yeah. beyond the grave. Just a sigh it's of a low sigh. <sighs> yeah, he's probably standing there next to Ghost Janitor. Yeah, sighing. Yeah, so they find even more <laughs> bodies, and Shadowstalker seems impressed with the Vegas Cape's coldness. Imp keeps talking about getting revenge against her, which eventually prompts Taylor to say, no revenge, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're sounding a lot less like Imp and a whole lot like, well, Regent, she said. So the fact that Imp had this response prepared suggests that she's aware she's doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and and, and if you look back on the things we've seen of her in the last few arcs, you see that that's exactly what she's doing uh, with with her, you know, finishing what regent wanted to do with his father with her taking in the heartbreakers with her sense of humor even feeling like more regenty 
Yeah. And, and even like this decision to suddenly become well versed in classic literature, it seems like a like Imp is like regent this this classic royal high class villain with the title of regent. It's Imp's interpretation of the way to be that. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, that that she to to honor Regent, she's just trying to become him. Yeah, I really like that idea of, of that that being why she's reading the the, the, the books and yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's my so guess. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it's it seems it seems fitting. Yeah, I agree. So they briefly mentioned that this elaborate cauldron base was going to be staffed and used as a hub for coordinating the human survivors. Um, and I just I, I like that this was mentioned because why this cauldron have these extensive insula- installations was mm-hmm. kind of a small mystery that was just kind of hanging. Yeah, and it's once again a reminder that Wildbo world Wildbo has constructed this world in a way that even the tiny little stuff pays off and has purpose. Yeah, right. So Telltale updates them that Scion has hit another world and he's getting meaner with each attack. Oh, poor Earth Daily. <laughs> I mean, it's Dalet, but it was it's Daily. Yeah, this is I'm I've sure. had canon. This is my Earth. Yeah, this is this is yeah. The, this is probably the Earth where there was no war because once containment foam was discovered. Yeah. Um. Everything was just fine. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Unfortunately, we were just totally unprepared for how to fight against against Sion. Yeah, we were. Has anyone tried containment foam on Sion yet? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, well, we'll see what happens. Poor, poor yeah. Earth Daily joining the ranks of Earth Freeman, which I'm assuming yeah. has been totally destroyed. I, I, I mean, yes, it was the first one. <laughs> so they keep going down into the structure and come upon heavy steel doors that have been peeled apart. Through these doors, Taylor is able to sense cells containing more culture and parahumans. These not seeming to have mutations. It's time for a prison break. So there's two, there's like roughly 2,000 or was it 2,500 cells, something like that. Something and like and that, half yeah. of them are filled. So we're talking about like a thousand more parahumans. <laughs> yeah. And Lisa thinks that there are floors below this one with prisoners who have been here longer. And we happen to know that she's right because we followed uh, Number Man through this presumably this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also mentions that K-53s can be considered a desirable outcome sometimes since they tend to be stronger and hardier and potentially capable of settling on Earths that normal humans or parahumans couldn't. Man, Cauldron just uh, continues to be total pieces of shit, don't they? <laughs> it's really great. Yeah, yeah, they're just trying to create those cats and cockroaches. <laughs> so they keep trying to get the prisoners to quiet down and ultimately... Rachel's shrill whistle does the job. Rachel, I love that moment. Rachel is MVP once again. Yep. yep. I, I I particularly like this exchange when when Golem notes that the people here think that they're there to free them, and Cuff says, "Aren't we? I mean, it's not why we came, but we can't leave without them. We're not heartless." <laughs> and Taylor comments that she made it a question was telling, and I'm like, "Yeah, that is pretty telling, Taylor. You're leading this up." And yet someone who was on your team for two years is like heartless. Yeah. Are we going to do the good thing here? Are we going to kill them all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then they're they're discussing how to deal with this and uh, and uh, completely justifying Cuff's fear. Uh, She says, make them fear us. I asked. I remembered Bakata's commentary on her lessons from Lung. Fear? Respect. Lung said. Same thing, Shadow Stalker said. Lung shrugged. So it's all all Taylor's mentors <laughs> are coming to the fore. Um, she just finds just the nicest people to look up to. It's really it's really great. It's inspiring. 
So abruptly, the custodian gets their attention via bastard and bull rushes Taylor, communicating, go back. Um, she guides the heroes into an empty cell. So I had a, a really hard problem with the geography of this stuff. And I th- it's it's definitely my own fault because I went back and reread it um, prepping for this. Um, I, I think I think I just imagined these as open cells still, even though it very specifically says in the text that they're like down a hallway and around a corner. But I, I just had this image of like an open cell that somehow these people aren't noticing all these capes in. And I just could not process it. Um, it's definitely not a fault of the writing at all. It's just my speed read the first time through. But it made this whole section very confusing for me the first time around. Yeah, I, I think one one interesting uh, like I, I agree there was. The, the, this this section, particularly when we start talking about stairwells, was confusing. And I think I, I think it may actually be because Taylor can sense things that she can't see. And by default, when when I have something described, I imagine it being in line of sight of the character who's describing it. So when Taylor's describing something happening in the stairwell, I have to remind myself that she doesn't necessarily see what's happening. Yeah. And I think that was it too. Cause, cause so much of the action throughout the rest of the chapter is just seen via video of them, yeah. them looking at it happening. So it's like, it's, it, it, it confused me as what, what was the stuff that we're seeing in person versus what we're seeing on the video versus what we're being relayed to us from lung. I mean, it's very complicated. There's a lot of stuff yeah. happening and I think it's just a, a, a fast read through the first time you miss some of the detail that, that really help, uh, unfold the geography of the scene but yeah. but i mean it it all became clear like it's all there it's just you you speed read and miss little moments of it or don't don't pay enough attention to where it very specifically says this is where the characters are this is what they're looking at this is what the camera shows um yeah yeah, yeah i mean you have you have this element of mentalum's power here which is making things really difficult so, yeah, yeah yeah so maybe i'm gonna headcanon it that that was intentional because mentalum's messing everything up there we go yeah boom agree so taylor pins her body cam to the edge of the cell so they can see the irregulars approaching and then uh they, they see them coming up with the deviant cases from from the lower level oh boy taylor can't sense them with her bugs despite being able to see them via video um so first clue about what's going on here yep the hundreds of prisoners are freed. Imp sneaks out so she can listen to what the ringleader is saying. And the super team expects uh, them all to head toward the cell that they've sequestered themselves in. The uh, the bad guys have a much the worse for wear weld Aww. looking like scrap metal and Sveta in her sphere. <laughs> yeah. So, that, yeah, they, they call them traitors to their kind and they're torturing them. And, like, they're they're ripping apart weld and they're heating up poor Sveta who's trapped in her sphere. That made me angry, Matt. Yeah. That made me mad. Yeah. I, th- this guy's, um, this guy's cult leader patter is, is on point. Yeah. He's uh he's really good at this mob stoking <laughs> thing. Yep. So Sophia offers to pass along a message as she escapes like a coward <laughs> and lung offers to kill someone for each of them since he figures he can survive this. So I, I thought this was funny as both of these guys are like, I'll do you all a favor since you're <laughs> all going to be dead now. Yeah. Thanks guys. You're both really swell. I'm so glad Taylor learned so much from you. I'm really glad. Uh, I, I do want to talk about this though, as we end this chapter and move into to the final one, um, because we started out this arc with prepping for the final fight with Sion and then Sion showed up and we lost that battle and Taylor had to adjust our strategy. And like we said at the beginning of the chapter, our our focus has shrunken and we've moved from this big world 
wide, like multiple worldwide fight against a god to this tiny superhero group infiltration survival horror type thing. But I think the amazing thing is that the stakes remain the same, even as we shrink down the actual conflict. And I think that's because like when you have conflict built around characters, when, when you're all your conflict is character based and not just, we care about this because the end of the world is no, we care about this because we know and love these characters. It doesn't matter how big or small you make the thing. You can maintain that level of tension, that level of stakes throughout. And I think that's why this stuff, even though we kind of pivot from the final battle stuff to this much smaller, quieter, um, more reminiscent of early worm fighting, it still works and makes sense and is a logical progression of the story. Yep. Yep. I think you're exactly right. We've kept everything grounded. We still had our usual um, chapter one where we got in touch with the characters and remembered why we actually care about all this. And so it makes perfect sense that, that this would feel just as um, resonant. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, five opens up and Taylor puts her knife to the throat of the guy who comes through the door and intimidates him with her nano knife. He does a decent job of trying to convince the people behind him that there's nobody in here. Thanks, dense man. <laughs> Outside, we get the play-by-play on how the escapees are crucifying the brainwashing cape, the slug, who doesn't have any limbs. And again, this is one of those details that I love, even as it's disturbing as hell. How, how do you crucify someone without limbs? With yeah. superpowers, that's with, how. With powers. <laughs> yeah imagine that guys hooray so they end up having to deal with only three guys her team gets the first two and she skirmishes with th- with the third with her knives and bugs he has a power that softens targets within a sphere she names him softball uh and this would actually be really freaky to fight when you think about it and and because uh, like he makes her feet soften um so she has to like if she didn't have like flight pack basically her feet would like deform um, but she, as usual, she outthinks him and she chokes him out with her bugs. Yeah, that's like terrifying. Like, that's like your feet would just be squished. Yeah. It's awful. Um, I, I have to once again note that Taylor, like, quickly addresses his power and then creates a strategy to counteract it and win and does so uh, effectively and quickly, just like Scion does. So, hooray. You're you're like Scion, Taylor. Um, yep. I, I particularly like her her internal monologue quip to herself where she says you want to play hardball softball <laughs> she's not she's not the best at quips man still still working on those yeah yeah this is not an area where she's grown perhaps i don't know <laughs> and, I, and she's doing it like when they're internal it just cracks me up because it's just literally for herself yeah she's just doing this for herself yeah oh taylor i love yeah. you um so we have Imp saying, it looks like we've got a full-on riot here. Armless dudes, good as dead. They're splitting up the crowd, so anyone that's not inside the circle has a few guys who can deal with the ghost janitor. Ghost janitor. <coughs> what, uh, Matt, Go, ghost janitor. Matt? Matt? Uh-huh? Imp stole my joke, Matt. She stole... I made the joke first. We have it on recording. I... Can I... Can I sue? Is there... Is there something... <laughs> can I do something legally? <laughs> Um, I mean, honestly, I, I think that this may have been in print first. Scott, I, so. There's no, cause I had no, it, she, there's I, a I stealth edit. I don't think that's how patents work. I, I think, uh, 
I don't know what it says that I have the same sense of humor as Imp or Imp trying to be Regent. I don't, I don't know what that says about me. Oh, it's it's a little uh, worrying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I think it's encouraging. She's her most well-adjusted character. Okay. In this group, anyway. So Golem suggests that they change into inconspicuous clothes and get out, but Taylor's still focused on the mission of recovering the Doctor. Outside, the enemy had formed into groups based on powers. Yeah, and another example of has Taylor really changed at all? We have her refusing stubbornly to abandon the mission even as problems continue to mount against the team. And as if to confirm that thought, we have this moment here where Taylor says, The small army we were faced with aside, I found myself smiling a little behind my mask. The situation evoked memories, except this time I had a cell phone. I had the pepper spray. I had a weapon. I changed. I was more prepared to do what needed to be done. Oh, oh, oh good. That's, yeah. that's, that's the change we wanted. And I think it's pretty intentional that it was Golem who spoke up here and was like, hey, mm-hmm. we could probably escape now. Like, like right. this, would be the, this would be the opportunity for us to make a graceful retreat. We've been told that Satter has things under control. You know, we, we, uh, there's like literally a thousand enemies literally a thousand enemies taylor a thousand right okay? right um so let's just back out of here yeah and 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 i'm i am golem by the way the guy who was right there with you on the whole mission being important thing i'm saying this and taylor's and taylor is smiling at the idea of getting into it with these guys scrapping she what? wants to scrap that's right. what taylor's about that's right. the thing that's not who Golem is. That's yeah. who Taylor is. Right. And and the thing the thing is, like, we have to remember that, yeah, some of these people are terrible. Absolutely. They're awful and they've killed people and they're going to continue to kill people. But a lot of these people are angry, scared, confused prisoners who have been trapped, who have been forced, stolen away, forced to be given powers and then locked in a cell for who knows how long. And th- these are people that are confused, that that suddenly find themselves freed and they're like getting getting talked up into like a mob kind of mentality by this this person at, at, that's like encouraging them and, and and pushing them towards this action and she's smiling at the idea of getting to take it to them and it's i don't know man i don't know it's not great no so taylor tells canary to use her power on the three inmates that they've subdued taylor experiments with making a floating death knife uh, but her first experiment is not successful. She orders Sophia to slip away and to snipe all the special K-63s when she gets the signal. And uh, I don't know if I want... I guess I'm going to have to read this whole bit because I it's think, all pretty... I think you do. I think yeah. you do. I'm assuming you'll insist on tranquilizer bolts, she said, Shadowstalker, because you don't want anyone dying unnecessarily, uh, needlessly. No, I said. I thought of neuter, of the unique physiology of the K-63s. Lethal shots. She made a funny little laugh as she looked down at her crossbow. She began loading it with the expert practice movements. <laughs> funny how it all turns out. This, for one thing, that I can't anticipate you anymore. And that it's just you. There's nobody to mourn when I'm gone. Family doesn't really care. No friends left. No teammates, even. I'm left to console myself with the idea that if I die, I'll at least annoy the depressing, creepy little geek from high school. 
I'd say something reassuring, I said. I want to tell you that you matter more to me than that, or that I'm sure you matter to someone out there. But I don't think you'd buy it. I wouldn't, she said. She wasn't maintaining eye contact. Whatever. I'm going as far up the stairs as I can, put myself half out the wall, snipe from there. I'll be a minute. So then, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but then we have Imp tell everyone, including Taylor, who who has, has not heard about this before, about what Regent did to Shadowstalker 20 or so arcs ago. Yeah. And, and then she finishes it off saying, Alec always, uh, sorry, Al, bleh, sorry, always ticked Alec off, you know, that you weren't any good at holding grudges, too focused on the present when it came to picking your enemies and your allies. I wound up, I wound up defending you even. Yeah. So this is, um, this is amazing. This is the my favorite part of this half of the arc so far. Um, we have we we have there's so many things happening at the same time. We have Taylor going full ter- Taylor with that lethal rounds order, but we have all these characters in the midst of this full on prison mob prison mob conflict coming, and they're all working off of their own private trauma, their own private conflict, and it's all being mixed together. We have. Um, Sophia realizing this moment that all she has left is Taylor. Taylor having forgiven Sophia, or rather refusing to let Sophia bother her anymore, kind of wants to comfort her. And Imp, channeling Regent again, gets fucking annoyed by that whole thing. Regent, not even there, is getting to express his feelings post-mortem <laughs> on the whole thing. It's this this triangle of conflict, and every character's pinging off each other, and everything has been set up and and led to this point. In the middle of this, this battle, we're having all this stuff that's pushed all the stuff to the forefront and and the, all their own personal demons come expressed naturally in the continuing conflict of the scene and it's just it's so masterfully done yeah this is such a long time in coming and, and it and it's yeah it's perfect yeah so it's not even done yet so imp goes on to explain that alec's motivation was always centered around getting revenge on his dad and that alec told her about his little adventure uh ruining sophia's life which means um and yeah, anyway, so then he says, uh, then she says, he's blind to his own emotions and you're blind to the emotions of others. Speaking about Shadow Soccer. And then she says that Alec felt like maybe he went a bit too far with Sophia, um, that he was kind of, kind of pushed into it in some sense by, by seeing what her life was like and the fact that she didn't appreciate it. And she finishes telling Sophia that her mom definitely loves her. Yeah, and then and then we get resolution to this conflict. Like all this stuff coming to a head finally in the middle of this thing, and then bam, resolution. Taylor is is finally able to hear the truth of what happened and and, and deal and process with that. Regent, like we said, gets to admit post mortem at least that what he did was wrong there. And Sophia finally gets to learn that there are people in her life that actually do care about her, whether she accepts that or not. N- none of this matters to the actual conflict of the moment, to, to the actual physical fight that's happening in front of them. Um, it, it doesn't move forward our plot in any short-term realizable way, but but it reflects the, the binding tissue of the story that Worm is. This is not a story about a giant universe-traveling shard worm. It's not about superpowers and action scenes and fighting and cool moments. It has all these things, yes. But what 
makes Worm Worm is the characters is and and these character moments these beautiful complicated messy people just trying to figure out their place in this this terrible cruel unforgiving world and it's it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful yeah yeah all right enough of that let's uh get on to taylor brutally killing people again yep this is gonna be good (laughs) so taylor tries to reassure canary one last time before they all prepare to bust out she gives orders to the three prisoners that canary has under her spell and canary has to clarify that don't move is a potentially lethal order when it comes to her power. Yeah, her power is like the, the monkey paws of superpowers. Yeah, yeah. Make a wish and it turns out horribly. Yeah. It's also it's also funny to me because prior to this moment, I, I wasn't like, oh, Canary has a really, really great combat power. It's like, no, her, her power is like as terrifying as uh, as uh, Veil Fours. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just instead of eye contact, she just has to sing. In fact, if anything, it may be more powerful. I don't know. It's like Started super region. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for um, yeah, so so she's thinking here. Um, for someone who hates being ignored, she seems to demand it from others. I thought uh, re- referring to um, imp. Sit in the corridor near where the spiky scaled guy is now. Tell him to come here. If anyone comes, kiss. Convince them they're interrupting something private. Get angry. Uh, I'm not comfortable with this bit. Cuff said, it's creepy. It's better than Lung having to tear people to shreds or burn them if they happen this way. I said, I'll take creepy. Okay, if I have to be specific, then I'll say it's a bit um, rapey. I frowned. Don't actually kiss, I told the man. Fake it as much as you can. Good call, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty rapey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so thanks. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks for speaking up, Cuff. Yeah, good job, Cuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, so she uh, she uses the dense guy to carry her knife out into the open, and then she makes her floating death death knife play using silk to carry it from above, and then letting it fall and swipe at Mentellum whenever the lights flicker. So for the first couple of passes, there doesn't appear to be any effect other than Mentellum stopping, and then finally Mentellum's effect dissipated. The blind spot filled in a crowd, capes, blood spraying. My bugs could sense them all. One more fun scion comparison, Matt, is uh-huh. Taylor casually swoops through a crowd of capes with a pencil-thin knife that just casually slices up a bunch of people. Yep. Hooray. Yep. I think, you know, Taylor's killed a lot of, like, clones of various kinds. Yeah. I think her kill count during this scene just, like, went up by multiples uh-huh. in, in terms in terms uh-huh. of, like, people, people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> You know, Weaver killed a toddler, so I think Skitter is actually the least bad of these <laughs> so far. Yeah, uh, so, that's terrifying. Yeah. So Lung wades into the crowd and starts pyrokinetically corralling the enemy. Shadow Stalker starts dropping motherfuckers. The custodian appears in vast numbers, so many insubstantial custodian bodies overlapping that she becomes a powerful force. That's so cool. Yeah. And I like the beat that the custodian is not killing people. The custodian is hurting people, injuring, punishing, uh, breaking limbs, but none of it fatal. None of it actually death causing. Yeah. Because yeah, that's that not her cool. job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Golem's hands shoved more away. Cuff strikes using her ability to manipulate metal and her metal gloves were enough to break bone. 
She shattered legs and arms, struck ribs, and threw people aside. I wasn't proud, but I knew that this cold, efficient ruthlessness was at least partially a result of the time we'd spent together. <laughs> I wasn't proud, but I was proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. So the, gr- uh, the group makes their way down the stairwell. Taylor using the knife just to ruthlessly jack people right and left. Yeah, and and like like we talked about, this is really unsettling. And uh, I think to 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 reinforce how kind of unsettling and disturbing this is, the text specifically describes over and over again how casual and and like like non forceful the swings of the knife are. Um, it's just kind of like. It just casually, like, like, just slowly, just through the people, and we don't see Taylor reacting to this at all. We don't see her reacting to the fact that she's straight up killing people. Um, And you could sit here and have an argument all day about whether you know, like, she's forced in the situation where she she's she's kill or be killed, so she has to kill these prisoners, even though they're not necessarily evil people. They're just kind of poor tortured people that have been driven mad by their imprisonment and then riled up by some other evil dudes. But it's the fact that she's just so casual and non thinking about it. That's the disturbing part that, that, that she has been backed into a corner, almost literally falls back into her smirking and embracing the challenge and then just goes right into fucking people up. Yep. Yep. Um, Taylor hasn't changed. Taylor nope. hasn't changed. No, I, it, yeah, it's all it's all really interesting coming coming after what felt like what felt like it was going to be a change. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I will admit that in the moment, in the moment when I listened to Taylor talk about call me Taylor and these moments where I I really I really do regret the things that I've done and these moments I really felt like okay we're making progress or we're making growth and and you you can still argue that coming to those realizations is a form of growth on its own but when you so easily fall back into these old habits you haven't you haven't really made progress yeah there was a moment I didn't call out the specifics of it but basically she's they're sitting in the cell and she's kind of iterating through potential solutions to this problem that they face that, that, that they're faced with and she's like okay i've got i've got these capes with me they have this set of powers i got my nano knife i've got and, and and she's like failing to come up with the solution and then finally it all kind of clicks together and she figures out what her solution is going to be that's one of the like prime moments of taylor's toolboxing because that's basically like a macgyver moment of taylor's toolboxing because she's in a really crummy situation but she has a variety of tools that she can use and she she comes up with the plan and and you know and it works because it gets them it gets them through it gets them down to uh down to where satter is um yeah. but uh it's it's really just the toolbox thing is very central to who she is actually she can't help herself i'm so glad we got that def- that phrase defined because it's such a yeah. simple way of describing exactly who she is and, and what she does. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, they get down to where Satirical's group is um, and he tells them they have a problem. It's not us. It's him. Him? Oh, him. Who Who could, who could him be? Don't know. Who could that be? I don't know. 
I, I, I can guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's maybe we should guess. But yeah, look, <laughs> let's uh, let's guess in speculation. Okay. You know, we didn't write down any any names for name game, but um, someone recently I forgot to pull out their name, but they they mentioned that we never really did a name game for Cauldron. I don't think. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, and I really like Cauldron because it has fantastic connotations. Um, you know, you get the immediate image of like a witch's cauldron potions. Yeah. Um, it has sinister implications, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which it is definitely supposed to, you know, narratively, even though I don't think cauldron sees themselves as evil. Um, it's probably all kinds of stuff that I'm, that I'm missing here actually. But, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a situation characterized by instability and strong emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you got the, the metaphor of like, of like, um, a, a, uh, what's the word? Like, a a boiling, a boiling pot. Yeah, is, a boiling is a, cauldron. Yeah. Boiling cauldron yeah. is an expression technically, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's certain, if you look to Macbeth, there's the, the connotation of like fate and, uh, yeah. and, and predestination and you've got precogs in the mix here. Cauldron is, you know. It's got Contessa. It's got all kinds of precog stuff going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like I feel like there's probably. I always I always say all of the things I can think of when it comes to name game, and then I realize that I missed like three different other possible interpretations. <laughs> so, hey, listeners, uh, what does cauldron mean to you? Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear what other people come up with because I'm yeah I'm sure you're right. It works on like a billion different levels. Yeah. All right. So. So other than speculating who him is, uh, do you have any speculations this week, Scott? Well, we don't have any old ones. Nothing was closed. Almost as if we're only halfway through an arc and we usually yeah. wrap things up at the end of an arc. Right. Um, so I expect there to be some next week, but none for now. Um, this is so, so this isn't really a new one, but I'm, I'm really like, we had that speculation I made long ago that, that the, the, um, passengers the shards were parasites that using her bug power taylor was going to find a way to control um i i wrote wrote that off as no as we learned more about the passengers i kind of had a speculation a few months ago that said no that's back in play although in a different way and i i really i really think like we are intentionally laying the groundwork for this idea that taylor is going to summon a swarm of capes in this one final attack on Scion. And I think, I think when I look at how that's going to be possible, how she's going to do that, I look at, at the introduction of Canary in these last few arcs and Canary is a person that can control other people with her singing. So I think Canary is one of the, the, the tickets to how she's going to manage that, how she's going to do that. So, um, I, I really, I really feel like that's what we're building to. And I think Canary is key to that whole thing. So I guess that's my speculation. Cool. And then, yeah, I'm going to, I, like, I feel like guessing who him is at a speculation is kind of cheating because I feel like I feel like it's fairly obvious. I, I I think it's Scion. I think he's here in Cauldron's base, and now he's just gonna fuck shit up. Probably looking for the corpse of his his friend. Um, but we're near the end of the book now, and speculations are hard to come by. So I'm gonna I'm gonna officially declare this one and hopefully give myself an easy win. Okay. Yeah. You, you don't think it's Poochie the Rockin' Dog? No, probably not. Oh. Okay, all right. He had to go uh, home to his planet. Oh, 
Wait, I forgot about is that, that. Is that how they wrote him out? It's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he actually died. He, oh, yeah, he died he, in, on the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Died Pucci on the way. had to go home. home to his home planet and died on the way. Yeah, that's a that's Simpsons right. reference for, for, for uh, people for that all, don't watch that yeah, anymore. For all of our listeners who are apparently younger than us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back when Simpsons was good. Right. Yeah, so that will wrap up our coverage of the first half of Arc 29 Venom. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is scottdaily85, and Matt's is more dinamail. See, I said mine... I messed up mine, so I thought I'd, I'd throw you a bone. Well, that's there. great, even though I intentionally misspelled it for you this this week. Oh, it just says at Mordor. Yeah. Oh, I man. Just, I was just messing with you. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. I'm yeah. sorry. I, well, one, well. One does not simply <laughs> say Mordor as a tweet Twitter. Fuck. I, I can't even come up with jokes anymore. Oh. Okay. Let's end this episode. Let's just let's just wrap this up. <laughs> so if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. As always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. That's D-A-L-Y, by the way. Um, you can also check out our other podcasting feed, which which this week had Michael, Matt, and I discuss all the various things we did and watched over our Thanksgiving break, which included a lot of new films that, that dropped last week. It's a completely spoiler-free discussion, so if you want to get a, a bunch of things that we liked and some that we didn't, go check that out. It was a good yeah. one. Yeah, it was fun. And if you like any of our shows and want to support them, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms, again, D-A-L-Y. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new planeteers, all at the $1 level. Gonzo McFonzo, Smirking Breaker, Aaron Mukapian. <laughs> thanks, I apologize Mika. for my pronunciations, everyone. I... I... Was gonna say Musapian, but I don't know. Musapian. Right. I think that's better. I don't know. Also, <laughs> I like well, how it's three weird names and then just good old Aaron, just holding yeah. it down for the good. the normal name people. <laughs> Solid Aaron, making me able to say words. <laughs> also, speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. And if you can't afford to pledge right now, that's okay. You can still help us by sneaking into the nearest federal prison and casually swooping a nano knife through everyone you see. I don't, I don't know how that helps us, but it feels like <laughs> feels like the end thing to do these days. Um, you could also just head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. This week we've got two new reviews to spotlight. The first comes in from Daniel and some numbers. That's, I mean, not like Daniel and and like literally, it's spelled Daniel and some numbers, um, who gives us five stars and says, I like it. Maybe you'll like it too. Maybe? Maybe? Huh. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Our second review comes from Chrono17, who also gives us five stars and says, absolutely wonderful. It's the best way to re-experience Worm if you've read it and a great companion to read it if you're new. Thank you very much, Daniel and Chrono. We really appreciate the kind words and the generous reviews. Uh, guys each and every review really does help us get noticed so please keep them coming i've seen them kind of kind of start to, to slowly pour in over the last few days we've got i think two lined up for next week already 
um, that came in after I had already written the script, so I couldn't include them. But uh, thank you guys. Please keep that coming. That's awesome. It's great, great to see. It makes us feel good, and it really does, really does help us uh, get noticed. Yeah, it's really, really encouraging. All right, that's it for us this week. Next week, we'll be covering the second half of Arc 29 Venom, which will include chapter 29.6 through 29.x, the ending interlude. Scott, what's going to happen in this part? <laughs> well, um, going off of my speculation that I hope is correct, uh, I think Cyan's going to come off and, and finish off our, our friendly neighborhood evil organization in Cauldron. Um, my guess, like I said, is that he's here to find the body of his counterpart entity, which I still think that, that Dr. Mother has in a lab somewhere. Um, I, I suspect that finding her there dead and kind of uh, experimented on is going to be something that the human side of Scion doesn't handle very well. And, uh, and he'll, he'll decide that he's done with his experimenting and, and decide he's ready to finish off everything for good. Um, and, and Taylor for her part will react to this revelation in a calm and collected and completely rational way. All right. That's my guess. Well, we will find out next week on another exciting episode of we got worms.